Hello and welcome to season three, episode five of Never Go Full Nelson. I'm your co-host, Nick Nelson, as usual, joined by my father, Ben Nelson. Hello, Dad. Hey, what are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Well, good? Uh, good. As, yeah, well. Looking good there. You're a little slouch, though. That's that's a dad thing. I'm going to sit up straight, man. No. That is, you know, that is officially the only time I have ever said that to you in my life. Isn't it? Is this better? I'll I'm lean so back proud. in my chair. I'm so <laughs> proud of myself. I've never said that to you guys. What, no slouching? Uh, slouching. I said, you know, I never said, hey, sit up straight. No, you know, what, you know what is a uh, better really do good that reminder? Shit, right? I, don't, no, no. I don't do that, right? No. A good reminder for me to not slouch is my back on. <laughs> you know, that's that reminds me not to slouch. Uh, You've earned that. Uh, decades, decades will do that to you. Yeah, it's mileage, man. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, plus, though, you know, your profession—that's got to be really rough on your back. Just kind of like hunched over, right? Well, yeah, because this is my here's my natural position. Nobody can see us right now, but I can see. Okay. He's doing a kind of a quasi-moto thing, kind of bending over. He's that's, not looking pleasant. That's kind of how I normally. It's work. frightful. Um, yeah. you know, it'd be cool if you could tape people to the wall, and I could just tattoo like you know, oh, leaning back. That would be nice. So, That's pretty good. You, uh, kind of uh, Michelangelo, huh? right? Put yeah. them upside down, lay on your back. Yep, yep, yep. Hey, who's inverted now, right? Okay. Well, hey, listen, Nick, we have got a really great guest with us today. Uh, she's, uh, I don't know, I guess she she came into our family there by having the misfortune, I mean, the, 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 the honor of marrying uh, uh, my sister's son uh, and uh, Robbie Blank. And... Uh, we got to know her a little bit there, and she is, like, way too smart to be marrying into this family. I mean, just way too smart. This right. is uh, uh, Dr. Jennifer Blank, and that was Ross previously, right? PhD, mm -hmm. research yep. assistant professor at Drexel University College of Medicine. Hi, Jen. Wow, you're like, Hi. hello. <laughs> oh, you got, like, like, some official titles and stuff. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. Most Thank impressive. you. Thank you. That, that uh, had to be like when, when you got out of college and you, you started in on that, you earned that and you were like, that had to felt really good, right? I mean, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, especially because, you know, you stay a student for, you know, almost a decade and your mentality just stays there. Like, I'm still a student. Uh, so having a little bit of, um, you know, credentials thrown at you, it, it's definitely a nice feeling. Yeah, well, it's got to kind of make the make the journey complete, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, Jen, um, I I went online as usual and uh, did some research. I, know, I read stuff. That's all my research was, um, uh, which is what people call research now, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, about you, and uh, it's really impressive. And I got to tell you, it's it's really interesting. Some of the things that you find interesting. Um, and tell it, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, and, and it says right there, uh, you know, about, you know, really what makes you tick the things that you're really interested in, uh, in your, in your bio is that, uh, but it puts you into this medical research kind of a mode and it's got to do with the inner workings of the brain, but kind of like the chemical inner workings of the brain. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, that's one way of putting it. Um, I mean, I'm generally interested in stress and stress-related disorders. Um, and so we look at the chemical... <laughs> yep, me too. <laughs> uh, Everybody's raising the, their hands. We look at the chemicals um, in your brain that mediate that response, essentially. Um, so definitely looking at it from a chemical perspective... Um, and we're just trying to understand really what are the long-term consequences of stress. Um, our society is really um, built in such a way that everybody's working all the time. Um, chronic stress is something that almost everybody experiences. So really what is the impact of that on the body over time? So just real quick, um, because I, I don't, uh, if I don't know anything about your 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 position, and nobody else probably is going to either. So what? So you're 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 a professor at a school? Is that what you do? Like what do you what do you uh, do? So I'm a research assistant professor at Drexel University. Um, okay. So I have taught uh, neuropharmacology. Uh -huh. um, that is the only course that I've taught there. 
um, and I just started teaching in the last year. But aside from that, really what I've done um, is work in a lab. Um, we okay. do studies um, on rodent models of stress. Um, are, you work, are you like working underneath another or, or with or underneath? Like, how does it work? Are you, are you with, are you like a conglomerate of professors or are you guys just kind of, I mean, like, how does it work? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so my boss um, and the um, principal investigator, um, as they would call it, um, is Elizabeth Van Boxdale, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Van Boxdale. She, um, you know, did a tremendous amount of work establishing, you know, pretty much all the all the bread and butter pieces that I work with about the chemicals that dictate the stress response and everything else. She um, and her group really established that. And then she went on to look at um, anti-stress systems as well. So that's, that's where sort of the, you know, cannabis and cannabinoid um, part comes in. So we're trying to understand, you know, the, the negative effects of stress. And she really, um, did the anatomical, the neuroanatomical work. Um, so really just tracking where in the brain, um, stress is having an impact and then, um, and then sort of segueing into anti-stress systems and trying to understand how, you know, um, how we can oppose stress naturally. And then, you know, by extension, like how do we target these systems to counteract stress as well? So, um, yeah. Uh, Dr. Van Boxdale uh, wow. is, is the PI. Cool. See, uh, the it seems like you know you when you'd go to the doctor before a long time ago, stress they would think like, oh, stress was something to be avoided. Some people believe that that oh, you avoid stress too much stress, and and then there was seemed like for a time there, I got to be well like, look, you know, there's something you know we've all got stress in our lives and stuff like that. This more how you deal with it. So it kind of felt like a personal issue, like. You weren't dealing with it properly, um, <laughs> but but then I guess there's there's also the the thing that you can do in your life in order to kind of ratchet up the amount of stress in your life, you know. And is all stress negative? When I say it like that, it sounds like all stress is negative. It's not all negative, right? Right. You're absolutely correct. A lot of stress is adaptive. Um, and that means that we are able to, um, have sort of flexibility in how we respond to stressors, um, learning and memory, things like that. Um, and so actually that brings up a, a really great point. The, the system that we, that we study, um, it's probably better defined in terms of arousal. So, um, you could sort of think of it as a spectrum where if you have too little of this particular chemical, um, there may be inattention or sort of you get bored, you're zoned out, you can't focus. Um, things like ADHD arise from not having enough. <laughs> um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, uh, really where there's um, more of a characteristic of hypervigilance, anxiety disorders. Um, this is where the stress system is sort of overactive, right? It, which is so interesting, right? It's one system. And you can have, you could be on both sides of the spectrum. Um, yeah, and, I've been raising uh, my hand this whole time for everything. <laughs> yeah. Right in the middle, you have this perfect, like, level of, um, of this particular chemical. We call it norepinephrine. And it is, you know, basically responsible for optimal learning um, and memory, optimal um, attention, optimal problem solving, creativity. Um, there's sort of just like this Goldilocks uh, situation going on there. Um, huh. I got, I got it. I got it. Let's just get some of that norepinephrine and let's just kind of like, that's it. Let's skip the middle, man. Let's not try to <laughs> create a list. Can't we just get a lot of that and then we just kind of take it? Tell me why we can't. If you're on the low end of the spectrum, if you're on the high end of the spectrum, that would maybe be problematic. So everybody's so and that's I guess that's another aspect of what we're studying, right? Is like everybody comes to the table with different like experiences. So where you sit on that spectrum, it differs between everybody. Um, 
And it dramatically affects how you might respond to drugs that target that system. Hmm. So you were talking about one time we are having a conversation uh, uh, and it's about uh, medical marijuana and how that that duality that you were talking about, that you suspect that maybe that's the reason why some people, they do a little bit of a uh, little bit of weed or do some, uh, you know, um, I don't know, an edible or something, and they have this bad experience. It's like too much for them. Uh-huh. Well, they're already jacked up on that side of it, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the people who can smoke all day, well, they're way on the other end of the spectrum. Right. Is that, that it, now, that's just a theory of yours, right? Well, I mean, so our, our um, so Dr. Van Boxdale's work um, and the work that's really been done in her lab has shown that Um, the naturally occurring cannabinoid system that we have in our bodies can activate the stress system and it can inactivate the stress system. It can do both. So we really think that our endogenous or naturally occurring uh, cannabinoid system is built in to regulate our stress response. If it's too low, the cannabinoid system can turn it on. If it's too high, it's supposed to be dampening down the effects of stress. And when somebody consumes, you know, an external cannabis um, with various unknown potencies and strengths and things like that, and if you're unaware of sort of where on the spectrum you are, you could be already sort of on the high end of the stress system and turning it on even further um, or on the low end and turning it up higher. So, um Absolutely, your sort of the variable responses to cannabis, I think, have a lot to do with your stress system, not just when you're smoking it, like in sort of the short term, but also like where you sit day to day. Um, I personally, I have ADHD. And so I I know I sit on the lower end of the spectrum. Um, And of course, like I, you know, I take other medications for that. But some people really have found a way for cannabis to treat their ADHD. Is there a is there a reason? Is there like a similarity to reason to being called cannaboid cannab- cannaboids? Is that what you're calling cannabinoids. it? Cannabinoids. Cannabinoids yeah. and cannabis are they related? So we have a naturally a natural thing like that in us. Yeah. So um, the only reason why any cannabis can be active in your body is because we have our own set of, um, they're called cannabinoid receptors. Um, There's naturally occurring, they're called endogenous cannabinoids. And we have an entire system where uh, we actually produce our own um, cannabinoid molecules that respond to receptors in our body um, and have this sort of natural ability to regulate our stress response. Um, and so when we take in an external um, form of cannabis, cannabis is comprised of many different, I mean, hundreds of different cannabinoids. Um, that's where things get really tricky. We have two uh, cannabinoids that are occurring naturally in our bodies. But what is, what is being sold um, generally, you know, whether it be medicinally or recreationally, um, it's, it's comprised of, of many different types of cannabinoids and even other types of um, molecules like terpenoids that can um, synergize or, or, you know, affect how the cannabinoids are received in our body. I, I heard somewhere that the, that, that molecule, when you really, the, the um, THC molecules, they're, they're amazingly complex that these molecules are. There's, there, there's, so that's one of the reasons that, that it's kind of hard to tell what, now what's going on here? What, what, what all are these things that they can do or whatever? Is that, is that true? Or is that just kind of folklore? Oh, no, absolutely. That it, that um, I mean, yeah. THC is, is the most, you know, commonly heard of mo- most well-known and, and best studied, uh, cannabinoid. Um, but we do not produce THC naturally. Um, and in fact, THC is a very, um, what we would call like a very psychoactive, 
um, compound. So it's really, it, it has a lot of um, impact on the brain. You know, when somebody might describe a high or some sort of, um, you know, euphoric sort of sensation in the brain, it's really THC that's, that's doing that. Um, in other, you know, depending on your strain, um, you know, something like, uh, you know, a hybrid, which, you know, is like 50% THC and 50% CBD, or even more CBD, uh, strong strains, which are less psychoactive, more um, sort of oriented to um, like a bodily response. Because um, we have receptors for these cannabinoids all over the body. Um, so... So, so let me, let me interject. So, so the CBD, is that, those are cannabinoids as well? Yes. Or, oh, see, I did not it's know It's an that. entire family. I mean, it's an entire family of molecules. There are so many and, and some have more sort of psychological effects and others have more of a physical effect in terms ah. of like your, so, your extremities. Um, so as far as, I'm sorry, are you actually doing research with cannabis and marijuana and stuff or is it just are you looking at it on like a just a you know because I, I know personally it wasn't even that long ago that you couldn't do any testing with it because it was a legal substance you know right but now that it's like more medicinal i mean are are you guys now allowed to do studying on the effects of you know pot and weed and marijuana and stuff like that or are you guys still have to keep a pretty far you know you know because even with steroids, anabolic steroids, it's it's hard to do studies with those because they're technically illegal. So it's like you know they they don't really understand really the true effects of anabolic steroids, on, on, scientifically speaking, because they they're not allowed to do the researching on it. And I know that weed's been the same way for a very long time. So yeah, you know, but how do you guys do? do yeah, that? no, that's that's a great question. Um, so Dr. Van Boxdale's work and a lot of the work that preceded my being in the lab was just looking at sort of, they were kind of descriptive studies of how um, our endogenous cannabinoid system, so this naturally occurring system, is set up. So looking at receptors, where are the receptors? Um, where are they positioned in the brain so that you know, and, and how does that relate to the stress system? Um, so we didn't have to necessarily be dealing with uh, cannabis or any related drugs per se um, to be studying that system. Um, but there are other, um, you know, we call them agonists or antagonists, things that either turn on or turn off um, the receptors. Those drugs have also been used to sort of establish what the effect of a potential, you know, um, ingestion would, you know, what, what it would cause. Um, but of course, so you guys are like hanging out, smoking a bunch of pot and shut the door. We're studying <laughs> meatloaf mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, um, you know, to, to the sort of, to respond to that a little bit, um, now I um, I will be starting up some new studies, um, clinical observational studies, looking at, um, we've paired up with a dispensary, um, actually many dispensaries. Drexel was just awarded in the last year or two um, several um, millions of dollars to study the effects of cannabis, um, and that was through a partnership with Agronomed. Um, and so I was just recently funded for a pilot study, a, a very small pilot study, um, to essentially go to these dispensaries um, and to observe the patient populations there. What are they using? For which indications? Um, you know, what is most helpful for a particular type of symptom? I mean, and what is the efficacy of marijuana for, for some of these symptoms? Like, this is something like you said, um, has been illegal for a very long time and it's made research very difficult. So we are just still, really federally is still like a, as, as far as federally, it's still illegal, right? Federal? Yes, that's right. Well, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking that, that, you know, like, like I said, I mean, for the longest time there was one, I forget which university it was. There was one university in the United States 
that uh, could grow marijuana. And if you did research, you had to use theirs. Um, some 60 minute special or something I watched like that. And because of that, there was always this, this, uh, and they had their own views on what the deal with marijuana was. So everything, mm, that's why I want to talk to you too, had a bias the, to the it. The devil's lettuce? Bias. Um, so mm -hmm. how, how do you, as, as a, as a scientist, as a doctor and a scientist, when you're doing these research studies and, uh, and all of us are human beings, we, well, at least most of us. <laughs> and so, but so we, we come with this, this ability to predetermine things and you have to be able to do that in order to develop a, a theory or thesis or something like that. You have to say, okay, well, maybe this is what it is and let me, true or false. But how do you not get kind of married to something like that? And is it, you know, and I, I've even heard the, in the, the writings of Carl Sagan, he always said that there was always this, this whole chance that you would fall in love with this one thing and you would kind of not want to, if you, then all of a sudden, if you saw the data come in, you thought there was something wrong with the data because mm. it didn't fit your theory. How do you, how do you guard against that? I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, so scientifically, that's a, that's an enormous problem everywhere. Um, I mean, you could be doing rodent studies and, um, I mean, that is where integrity, scientific integrity comes into play. And you really just have to, um, you know, apply as much of an unbiased perspective, um, you know, and, and at least statistically, you should be helped out by, you know, all of your data gets, you know, analyzed and what the statistics tell you. Um, you really can't argue with that. Um, or at least you shouldn't. <laughs> um, you shouldn't go looking for ways to prove your theory, you know, and. Well, I know when I'm researching on, on YouTube, <laughs> my biased opinion is definitely influenced by Google. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the other thing. I mean, whether you're looking at the academic literature or just what's on the Internet, you will always find what you're looking for. Right. So the, uh -huh. you really have to you know, cast a wider net and, and really be looking for the whole story. Um, and I could tell you, you know, from my personal perspective, uh, for a very long time, I was really against, against the use of, of marijuana in general. Um, but, you know, medicinally, it, it has a tremendous impact for people. I still personally feel uh, a little unsure about its recreational use, but medicinally, um, there's no doubt that let's, that it's let's be honest here. And I, I tell this to people all the time. I don't smoke pot, so you know I, I'm one of the people that obviously are on the on the higher end of what you were talking about as far as pot marijuana affects me very negatively. And I've tried even now. People are like, "Oh, did you, you got to try this? Oh, you have to do this drink? No, you got to do." And eh, you know what? That's just way too fucking complicated. I've I've tried it all. <laughs> the the least amount that of, of effect that's ever had on me and it's just made me fucking like that's what it makes me like i can't fucking think i can't function i can't fucking do anything mm. and on the terrible end of the spectrum i get terrible anxiety i get tunnel vision i think i'm going to fucking die um and those are the, my problems so the, i don't smoke pot but i also have a lot of friends who do and and so many people and i see so many people treated as like some kind of superpower or super plant and blah blah mm. And I mean, um, let's be honest, 99% of the people that I know smoke it recreationally to get fucking high. Mm. I mean, that's why they do it. They do it to get stoned. They don't do it. And they do, they do it so much that they can't function without being stoned on a daily basis. That's yeah. how much they're fucking doing it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, in that, well, that sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, history is, is replete. I mean, I'm on the other, man, not all the way on the other side. I understand the necessity of being a human being and the reality and of, of being a human being and wanting to change your perspective chemically with, with drugs or alcohol or whatever. Oh, we've only done that for uh, forever, forever. Human beings have done that, whether it was mushrooms or to, for religious, religious experiences or whatever. It Making is like fog this. butts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and you know what? I think it's just a matter of, abuse there is use and there's abuse i think for me that's just my opinion um and and let's face it i mean the the best um the best drugs in the world 
It doesn't matter what it is. It can be abused and, and probably is being abused. Or it, something is like that. marijuana a super drug, though, from what you're finding out? Um, so I haven't initiated my studies yet, but. Uh, um, super drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I can say is that medicinal marijuana and, you know, sort of controlled marijuana is much different than what is sold sort of illicitly and without being regulated. Um, mm. The really important thing, I think, um, that, I mean, ab- like Ben said, abuse potential is always there. And actually, that's probably one of the greatest challenges when it comes to marijuana um, and sort of how high risk it is for abuse potential, um, you know, that challenges, you know, getting it, you know, having it used for even medicinal purposes. Um, and, and there's no way to sort of move around that other than to regulate what exactly, what compounds or, um, I guess the strength of the marijuana that you can purchase, um, at least legally, illegally. Um, you know, it's so interesting because the generations that came before us, uh, you know, especially those in the 60s that were like young in the 60s, um, talk about, yeah, talk about like smoking <laughs> all the time and, and smoking lot a lot of weed. But the truth is that what they were smoking then was likely much less potent, much, you know, less strong um, in terms of what it was doing in our bodies uh, than the strains that we have now. And it's because... Um, you know, when you talk about someone experiencing a high and, um, you know, someone who is really kind of um, unmotivated and non-functional, you know, there have been strains that have been selected over tens, at least 10 or 20 years now, strains that have been selected to do that thing specifically. Right. Oh, yeah. But that's yeah. very. Different. Yeah. There's a lot of us around who, who need a little disconnection. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that, you know, you're you're never going to catch me kind of go along. Wow. You know, it, it's not in me. Um, and so far as, you know, that that possibility of use, I don't think marijuana is necessarily any different than, oh, I don't know. uh, uh I'll uh, What's what's some popular drugs? Once for pain, right? Oh yeah. Uh, they they're they're just if they work and they work good, people are going to abuse it. That I mean, as a general rule, that's just sure. that's just a old hippie Ben knowing that that's it. If it was shitty and it felt really horrible, you, they don't get abused too much. Or if they're really dangerous, like caffeine, and you do too much, you die. Right. So well, that's, so that's a great point, right? Like. Yeah. Like caffeine is in fact a drug and we all, I mean, many of us consume it all day, every day. Um, but it makes us more functional rather than non-functional. And I think that it's important to consider that there are people out there who can use marijuana in such a way that it makes them more functional. Um, yeah. that's, that is possible. The fact that it's being abused um, in, in recreational, for recreational purposes, um, you know, that's, that's unfortunate and it makes it harder for the people that need it medicinally to get what they need. Um, it's hard, it's harder. It makes it harder to take the subject serious too. Yeah. Even as a researcher, it does because, you know, first thing, oh, you're, you're studying marijuana. Oh, that's cool. No, not, not because of that. Right. You know, there's so much that needs to be, you know, in, and Nick has been, just really skeptical of, of those effects. And he should be because it, it, like you said, it's all anecdotal information. Um, Mm -hmm. and you're right. Yeah. You know, I, I know this as a child of the seventies. Uh, let me read this to you. The, (laughs) the pot has gotten a lot, lot stronger. It has gotten a lot stronger. It's just weird. Uh, it was 4% THC by average in 1995. Right. Well, that would, I can't imagine what it was in 1970 <laughs> in 2018, 15%. Wow. So that's threefold yeah. at least, right? Yeah. That's a threefold increase. You know I mean? What's, what's it going to be 10 years from now? Right. Holy jeez. Right. 
right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, and let me tell you, being too high is no fun. I don't, I don't think it's fun for hardly anybody. So, uh, so anyway, tell us about the, um, the other part of your research that you do too, and I think you do this at Drexel as well. Is uh, is this whole connection to what we're talking about and Alzheimer's disease? Right. And is it is more really about stress and that kind of thing? Do, do you are you guys involved in any research on that, or is it just by extension, or what? So yeah, so really, where I where I did my doctoral work was looking at an animal model, um, a genetic model, really, of chronic stress. So we were able to turn on essentially the stress gene um, for you know two weeks in 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 a rodent model um, and study the effects of of that stress. And what we saw was that the peptides or the proteins that are um, you know known to sort of aggregate and, you know, form plaques in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. Um, and that really sort of disrupt communication between brain cells. Um, you know, that protein was redistributed. Um, so it didn't actually get higher or lower. It stayed the same, but there was more of that protein in our stress responsive neurons. So what does that mean? It means that we have more vulnerability. Those neurons are then more vulnerable to dysfunction over time um, or to degeneration over time. Um, and that ends up being pretty significant considering that those brain regions, um, in particular, uh, the one that we study is the locus ruleus. Um, that brain region is one of the first regions to show serious signs of um, dysfunction in Alzheimer's. So, so is there kind of an implication here or do you think that this is going your sense that this is going to go in the direction that you know alzheimer's alzheimer's and dementia is really down at the real chemical uh, molecular level that these things really happen uh it's not you know brains wearing out or anything like that there's a specific chemical at work that's doing some damage i actually just read something a week ago though that also says that dementia it is due to lack of movement. Like uh, they were saying that they, there was a study done um, with 50, 65 plus and stuff like that about, you know, people moving less as they age con uh, contributes to the, the dementia also or something. So like, yeah. So, so that's a great point. There's um, it's, I think it's important to, make known that there are really two broad categories of Alzheimer's disease. And one of them is primarily genetic. That is the early onset Alzheimer's disease. And the second type, and the one that my research is really related to, is late onset Alzheimer's disease. So this is people who start to experience cognitive decline after the age of 65. And that's probably, you know, that's what most of the people that we know are experiencing, this late onset. And, <laughs> um, and what's important to know about the differences there is that absolutely lifestyle factors do contribute to late onset. It's things like diet and exercise. Um, and we would argue stress um, would contribute to this late, uh, late onset um, Alzheimer's. Now, I don't. I'm 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 curious because there was a psychologist um that was, her name was uh, Tracy Dennis Terry or whatever but I heard her in an interview on she was on an interview a couple of weeks back on NPR and she's got a book that basically argues that that anxiety is good for you even though it feels bad because um it basically it lets you know that that hey there's things going on in your wrong in your life and we've been so for so long, for the last 30 years or so, trying to mask and cover any stress or anxiety to be emotionless and all this stuff, when it's really just kind of a natural part of us. And it's what kind of, it keeps us from, you know, that whole worry and anxiety is, is what keeps us to, to do things, you know, and, and sure. better ourselves and whatever. I mean, I, I agree in the sense that, um, everything that our body does is built to protect us. Um, yeah. Anxiety in particular is telling us that there's something wrong. Um, yeah. But the anxiety that people, you know, I would just challenge 
that concept in, in one way, and that would be to really understand how is our society responsible for that chronic anxiety, that chronic stress, right? We are just mm-hmm. simply trying to make it and, and live in this, you know, society that we, that's already well established. If 90% of the people, you know, or I don't know the exact statistics, but if a majority of people in the United States are experiencing chronic stress uh, due to a variety of reasons, don't we think we need to look at why something like anxiety, something like depression would be so prevalent? It's not just, it doesn't just come down to the individual because yes, these things are very adaptive, very functional, but to be in this environment is part of the problem. I think one. I think a person could argue too. Also, though, but because of those things, and and just, I hate stress personally. But I also notice that if stress is also circumstantial, so it depends on what I'm. I could be stressed out about small things if there's not big things going on in my life, and if there is big things going on in my life, those are the things I'm stressed out. But as a human being, I'm constantly feeling this, like you say, chronic stress. But I mean, is that just it? Because you know, I mean. Is that a part of us being human and and growing because you know because of that stress it keeps us progressively moving you know like problem solvers you know yeah people who who do well under stress you know they wouldn't like me for example I don't produce unless I'm under stress it's just the way I've always been always been the guy that's that waited to the last minute and then produced really well at the end but I've really stressed myself out the whole time because of it but I don't function any other way. Right. Well, there I would say, um, well, first of all, you know, just thinking about that, that bell shaped curve again, if you kind of naturally sit on the lower end of that spectrum and a little stress pushes you to optimal functioning in terms, in terms of norepinephrine, um, that's, I think that's part of why, you know, heightened arousal and increase in, in stress as we perceive it can be so functional, can be helpful. Um, And I think that it's important, too, to consider that, like, chronic stress is when there is, like, no, there are no breaks. And the truth is that, you know, we all do experience everyday stressors. But when, you know, when things are relatively calm, our brain is repairing and it's growing and it's adapting. So that's where stress becomes really adaptive and functional and good. It's when we have this sort of long-term, like, just, you know, typically, um, I guess I should say that, you know, there have been some studies done about, like, who is really affected by chronic stress. And a larger portion of people in lower socioeconomic statuses, um, people of, you know, minorities, these are people who are struggling every single day and they're more likely to show these negative effects of stress. Um, Absolutely. And the, and I think the difference there too is, is like in terms of how, like how would we know the difference? Our, our bodies are built so that we, you know, we perceive a stressor, we respond and we produce, you know, cortisol, we release norepinephrine and those molecules actually feed back and are supposed to turn off the stress response. So it's, it has a, be- a very finite beginning, middle, and end. And like that's the most functional version of responding to stress. What happens? Well, what, what is, well, yeah, I was going to say, and, 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 and forgive us all, we, we're trying not to run over each other here, but it's hard because of this lag that we're having. But, but yeah, for people like me, when uh, you have that event and then it just doesn't shut off, what the hell is up with that? When it doesn't shut off by itself, it just keeps running. It's like this valve gets opened up. Yeah, here's your norepinephrine. And then some whoever the goofball is that's got that valve open, he doesn't come back and shut it off. Right. What, it, what? Exactly. So that's those are the conditions where dysfunction starts to happen. The very same mechanisms or you know um, activities in our bodies that are designed to protect us actually become problematic and can actually wear away at the integrity of our immune systems, um, our, our, you know, various parts of our brain, um, you know, over time, um, this really becomes a, a, 
a problem, a negative, a negative issue. But that's not to say that all stress um, or even all anxiety is is a negative thing um, in general. Hmm. Well, yeah, and it's I guess it's because I- anything can be stressful to somebody, right? I mean. And everything is stressful to people. Some people can't. Everybody's always willing to trade their stress for somebody else's. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really easy because of that to downplay um, not only, you know, what stresses you out. Eh, that's nothing. Well, how do you do it? You know, to make it look like it's, eh, you know. But it's the same thing about people will tell you to walk stuff off all the time. That they go, yeah, really? Have you ever had this before? No, they haven't. And that's that's putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is really more difficult for people than you would think, you know? Yeah. What, what, what exactly are, as far as, um, this stuff, you know, the research and whatnot goes, what are your goals to accomplish in the research of the, of, of these studies that you're, you're pushing for? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, probably I mean, the it, hardest one to answer. Get- is it just to get the education on it and to understand it? Or is there like a, you know, a, a treatable goal towards oh, some of this? Stuff? I mean, absolutely. The dream, the absolute dream, I believe, for many researchers um, is to make a difference clinically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, me personally, that is absolutely my driver. Um, I, I really want to make a difference for people. Um, and in sort of... Going from the preclinical um, sort of study route to the clinical study route, I, you know, I hope that that's, um, you know, something that becomes a bit more, you know, tangible. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely difficult doing preclinical, you know, rodent studies and trying to see that immediate clinical. Well, rodents can be particularly difficult, I find. You know, oh, you like way. rodents just fine, Nick. <laughs> you know you do. I love you like the rodents. Squirrels are you my favorite rodents. creatures on the planet. I love squirrels. <laughs> yeah, he had a squirrel. It was I nice. had a squirrel. It's very nice. So, so let, let, let me get to the this one question. I think that there's more of an accusation, not for me, but it's just like kind of people talk about it sometimes. About um, okay, researchers. Research has to be paid by some, for by somebody, mm. right? And so. Uh, when you're in the industry, I'll call it industry and even in education that you're doing right there, it seems like a lot of times if somebody with enough money wants to know the answer to a question, right, they can make an endowment to a university or something like that. Corporations, a lot of people do it. And the reason they want to know about it, and it's a really good, and, you know, there are benefits to humanity for, you know, somebody saying, hey, I want to know uh, how, how we make people feel better uh, in these situations right there. <laughs> but unfortunately. <laughs> but unfortunately, does it frustrate you sometimes? Are there, and I would think that the answer to this question is yes, but does it frustrate you and that some things, if there's no money in it, there won't be any research done on it? Or it's harder to get money to research it? Then it, then all of a sudden, a college, a university has got to take it on the chin. There's got to be... You know what's funny about what you're saying that, though, is what? I remember at the very early... And I, I want you to answer the question, too. I'm not trying to cut you off, but it's funny that you say that. Give me time to think. <laughs> at the very beginning of COVID, when they just started seeing it coming out of China, and they had... I, I, listen, I listen to NPR all the time. They had uh, researchers and, and those people you know, the types of people who, who decide whether or not they're going to come up with vaccines and whatnot and how to do it. They were on the show and they were talking about, well, is this something that we're going to, should we start researching how to vaccinate against this or whatever? And they're like, no, nah, not really. Because, you know, unless there's any money in it, nobody's going to pay for the research on it. So and basically, if you're not going to make any money on, you know, if only a couple of people are getting COVID, why would, mm-hmm. but, you know, I'm sure they were all kicking themselves after that interview six months later, but. <laughs> well, as a, as a socialist cap or socialist <laughs> democratic pig myself, uh, whatever people want to call me, uh, that's the beauty Comrade. of big government sometimes is because, you know what, you, there's no money in it, not, well, here, there, how about that? Find, find something. We need to keep people alive. Well, then, then it, there was money in it, you know? So there are times when either philanthropists, you get a Bill Gates or somebody who actually wants to cure smallpox or polio or something like that. So there are got to be those people there too. I guess there's just a balancing act there, right? 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I mean, I'm I don't know what the numbers are on this, but in all of my experience so far in the academic world, we rely on the National Institutes of Health to support our studies. And I mean, we complain in the sense that funding has become really competitive, especially as those numbers go down, you know, politically it becomes harder and harder to get your, your research funded. Um, and the truth is that, like, a lot of good science doesn't get funded. Um, you have to make really compelling, a really compelling case for why your work should be chosen. Um, so I'm really used to having to, like, you know, kind of fight to be seen, fight for my, for my work to be seen um, by reviewers as Find something that's... Slash salesman. yeah 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 right um yeah and thank god we have to like you know sell our ideas and not ourselves because i would be just the worst at that um (laughs) but uh (laughs) but i could advocate for my ideas you know and um yeah so i i just think that you know it's interesting that that that's the perspective that you have because in my world it's sort of it's sort of flipped on its head a little bit um, you know, and, and maybe that's because I don't work with a lot of nonprofits or or people that have really, you know, gone out there and gotten funds for a very specific cause. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and I think that that it, it may well be, like I said, it may just be people's perspective. I don't know if that's the reality across the board or not. And like you said, I'm sure that there's, you know, I think Pfizer can do fine on its own so far as figuring out how to make whatever it is they're looking for. Right. right I, I don't right. think they're having to, to uh, farm that out too much, but, uh, but anyway, uh, so anyway, can we talk a little bit about you're a new mom? Well, well, well do you consider yourself still a new mom? Yes. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I think I'd be a new mom for the rest of the year, at least. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm still a new dad. My, my kids are only what 40. What? Something, I don't know. <laughs> um, so how, how is your youngster now? The baby. I mean, she's, she's just turned four months. Um, she's wonderful. She's just started sort of picking up things. Yeah. Shows how much I pay attention to anything that's going on. That's not involving me. I had no idea. You guys just had a baby. (laughs) They had the baby. Yeah. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. It was a dramatic ordeal. You know, she came a month early and you know, it usually is. Yeah. Usually is. I remember, I remember, I remember the first time I had a, a child and that this was, you know, 23 years ago, wow. my first son was born and uh, I was only, you know, 20 myself. I was not prepared for any of it. And he had a serious medical condition when he was born. He was flown to Tampa General. Uh, he was in the NCIU for, you know, two, three weeks, had major surgery. And then, you know, all the other traumas that came with after that. And then, you know, my most recent son too, also, this was only, you know, nine years ago now, but my ex-wife also had, you know, the, her placenta ruptured and, you know, towards the end of her trimester. And it was a big thing with that too. So I get, I get it. Like it's always a traumatic, even if there's, I mean, you, you said that it, she came a month early or whatever. Yeah, she came a month early. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I eventually, you know, we tried the natural route, but that just didn't work out for me. So we, you know, had a C-section and that, you know, that that can be kind of traumatic in itself. But I'm I'm sure. I mean, I, they, they even say that even small operations are major operations. You know what I mean? Just because, you know, I it we I don't think we really think about it really too much until we have to go through that. And then mm-hmm. we're like, Oh shit, there's a lot that goes into this. <laughs> yeah. Ben was running away and now he came back. <laughs> well, to be, you know, to be honest, I was a little bit upset because my mom, um, you know, she, I have uh, two sisters. I'm, I'm one of three and all three of us, she had C-sections and she never told me really what it was like. <laughs> and I think it's because she really, you know, didn't want to influence whether or not I was going to have children. But, you know, I came out of the operating room. I went into the operating room thinking, okay, this is about to be over. <laughs> and, you know, I'm on the table and it was like, it couldn't be over fast enough. I mean, it was, 
you're awake for the whole procedure. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, personally for me, I wasn't sure, you know, to what extent the anesthesia was on board. Like, I mean, I felt like I was feeling more than I should have, but then again, they say that you feel pressure, you feel tugging. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I have a really low tolerance for pain. Um, which I, I don't know, man. I, I, I use I use lidocaine in my job, and and then I I ended up cutting my hand open a, a couple years ago, and had to get stitches, and they injected you know uh, I don't I think it was some sort of lidocaine into me to numb it to stitch it, and none of it worked. I mean I felt them stitching up my hand the whole time, yeah. and they were like, "Do you want us to keep doing this?" I'm like, "Well, you got to do it." So I mean I I have yeah. to deal with it, but I can feel everything that you're you're doing right now. Yeah, it fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah no, it, that was absolutely my experience. And I, it was kind of mortifying, <laughs> you know, because like I always figured like, oh, like you don't feel anything. You get I got the epidural. I got whatever they were offering me. I took Give it to me. Yeah. And yeah. still, it was deeply uncomfortable for an hour. Um, yeah. So it was not it's not my favorite. But, you know, my daughter's now like my favorite person. So I guess it all, you know. All evens out. What's her name? Cora. Cora. Cora Gray. Cora, Cora Gray. That's a cute hmm. name. I hope she looks hmm. like you and not Robbie. She looks yeah. a lot like Robbie, <laughs> actually. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Tell I just I'm had kidding. a. Fl- I had a flash of a baby with Robbie's face. I was like, <laughs> no. I think those Nelson jeans are really strong. I think they come through. Uh, they weren't strong for me. Me and Neil didn't get a lot of them, but my sister, my dad. Robbie got them. Yeah. Uh, you got, they, they all kind of have my grandfather's kind of jeans. You can see it. Oh, you got you got them internally. I've got them internally, not externally. My mother's <laughs> get, jeans were you very didn't get strong. Hit in the face with them. No, <laughs> no, I wasn't slapping the face with it. But yeah, I, got, I I did get a little bit of the nose. But my mother's jeans physically overcame those Scandinavian ones. But yeah, yeah but Robbie, my grandpa, my uncle Tim, my my aunt, his mother, yeah. my dad, they all have those Nelson physical jeans in yeah. their face you know they're strong <laughs> scandinavian yeah yep scandinavian um yeah anyway so um it's 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 tough uh how are you how are you um tell me about about te- your full-time teaching right so i'm not currently teaching um because so oh. i like half the semester i was on maternity leave so um it won't be until probably the fall that i i teach again um, and oh, pretty so. much if I'm not teaching, it's just research. It's writing grants, trying to get funded, reading, writing. It's like this. It's just, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's the fun work you get to do, right? I, I mean, it is. I, the, the thing is, so I, I mentioned earlier, I have ADHD and I'm just very fortunate in the sense that like my hyper focus happens to be on the thing that. I do for a job like this particular segment of, of research is super interesting to me. So I've benefited Uh from that. Um, and I don't think, I don't know if I could work anywhere else outside of academia because that's where your creative freedom really becomes limited. Like somebody else is telling you what to look at in academia. You know, if I can get my ideas funded, I can be the driver, you know, of, of, what I do. And that's kind of important for somebody with my, you know, conditions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think companies though, a lot of companies, um, you know, I'm not in love with Google or any of them like that right now, but I think a lot of them have know that, uh, people like yourself, people who are talented, people who are creative, uh, they know how to, to court you guys. And, uh, so I wouldn't shut the door on going out to the private sector someday you never oh, know sure. i don't know you because know what ray stance says on the ghostbusters i have worked in the private sector before they expect, <laughs> they expect results, results. <laughs> <laughs> i mean true, true, that's true. also very true um <laughs> yeah because uh, once you start working for one of those companies they need to make a profit off of the research that's done um yeah someday right yeah i mean and the thing is i don't know it's certainly I'd be probably paid like twice as much anywhere. Else, <laughs> you know, that's the truth of it. You know, yeah, that's the price you pay for like wanting to study what you want to study um, until you're like super well established and have tons of grants. You're just 
you know. Well, you're still new in the game, right? I mean, how long you've have have you been doing this since you've graduated? I mean, was it been how long has it been? So I I graduated in 2018. Um, mm-hmm. So and I was a postdoc for two and a half, three ish years. Um, so that was the that was the big bump, I'd say, going from being a PhD student to you know a postdoc. You just kind of immediately make twice what you were making before. Um, Mm -hmm. And now being a research assistant professor, I think there's a lot hinged on my ability to get my stuff funded um, before I I really see any increases there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good place. I think academia is a good place to, to make your name, too, I would think. I would think that, you know, because the things that you create your, you've got more of a chance of your name being on them than if you were working for Wyeth or Pfizer or whatever. And uh, guess what? It belongs to them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's crazy on papers. If you, if you look at the authorship, you could almost tell right away, which ones are, um, you know, coming out of big companies because there's like 20 names on there. You look at an academic piece, like maybe there's five usually like, but yeah. Well, I, we're getting pretty close to the time. Is there anything that, that Dad, that you want to kind of bring up or talk about before we get a little too far along there? Or not that uh, I want to cut you off there. I, I am having a great conversation with you guys, but I, I don't know if you want to keep it under or keep it around an hour, Dad. Hey, or not. what are you guys watching on TV? <laughs> you I mean, Ben's watching. Well, Barry, I love Barry. You, oh my are goodness! You watching Barry? We are not. My wife Robbie loves Barry. that guy. What's his name again? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, we started watching this thing. It's and it's called. There's a lot of these uh, Netflix. Oh, Nick, you you turned me on to this one. Is this is a pleasant? It's called uh, FLDS. Oh yeah, it's about was, the it's about yeah. the uh, fundamentalist Later Day Saints. Yeah. Holy moly! It's just an it's like a four part thing. And it just tells about this is in this day and age. You think it was going back into the 1700s or 1600s, and these people are the, the women are getting abused, and children are, and it's just horrible. Oh wow! It's, uh, really. it's just a, it's a you know, and it's a documentary, and in um, about, and it's it's so good to see that actually that in this particular case the judicial judicial system worked. Yeah, very it, it rarely it works, but it did. Yeah, but it worked this, this time. Thank God. I thought yeah. this was going to be one of those stories where nobody was held accountable or something. Oh my goodness! Uh, so we watched that one, and then on the heels of this, we watched one called uh, "Sins of the Amish." Yeah, yeah. For all you Amish people out there, hey, sorry, <laughs> hey, they're not listening. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> You'd have to be yelling it to them across their fence line. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's some guy in there, eh? That's it. That's not Amish. That's I don't know, Canadian. Uh, but no, that's what that's what we've been looking at. That there's a few of those things. How about you? What are you and Robbie watching at night? Um, oh man, yeah. I mean, I embarrass. I am embarrassed to say that uh, Coco Melon is, you know, grazing our uh, Netflix <laughs> most watched at this point. Um, what is that? What? Coco Melon. It's a kid's I show. Don't I don't know what it is. I don't know where it came from, <laughs> but uh, it is like consistently on our top 10. And I understand why now. Like parents, if you just put it on, they are just like amazed. Like they're just. Oh, yeah. That's come a long way since the bubble guppies, I suppose. Oh, yeah. it's a kid thing. It's a kid oh. thing. And it's, I mean, it could be worse, I think, but uh, I personally don't do so well with like the repetition. So sometimes I put my headphones on, um, but well, yeah, it's that. And watching, uh... oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Oh no, you go ahead. Is that? Oh no, no, I didn't know you were finished. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was gonna, gonna say something, talking. and honestly, I'm probably <laughs> I probably prefer not to say it. So go ahead. <laughs> oh, you then you gotta tell us what that TV show that's really embarrassing that you've been watching. Yeah. What is it? Oh, I'll man. tell you one if you tell me one. Come on, come on. It's not a it's not a regular TV show. This is something that Robbie got me into. Okay, think, it's it's Dungeons really and Dragons. Is. Oh. Uh, like the gaming, we we watch other people play Dungeons and Dragons. It's called Critical Role. Just, and it's I know Critical Role. I, see, my other 
my other podcast is a gaming podcast that that's almost like very similar to that that it's called uh, Record of Mortimus and it's, it's basically six of us and we game in the room the room back here that you can see. That's awesome. And I podcast that. Um but critical role, I didn't know but shit, why don't you guys just do the gaming? No, I mean we do. We we we've played. Um it's a little bit hard to coordinate with our friends right now. Um yeah, people have like, life stuff going on. I mean, I guess us included. Um, but mm-hmm. so we do play, um, from time to time, but critical role right now is sort of what we watch. Pretty popular with, with, it's pretty much the standard of, of like, uh, gaming, like streaming gaming, like podcasting or TV. Steph and I, we've been watching, um, the Orville. We've been watching that cause it's, it's basically Star Trek, but, but better. Mm. It's a better Star Trek, if you can believe it. Uh, Orville is really good, Dad. You should watch it. Is that on um, Netflix? It's or? excellent. It's on Hulu right now. Oh, Hulu. So, okay, but oh. it's excellent. It's it's like it, they're actually Star Trekking, like they're supposed to do in Star Trek, and it's episodic, and 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 it's it almost was making fun of Star Trek in the beginning, and then they were like, oh. Wow, we're kind of better at doing this than Star Trek. Oh, that's what, the, what the the funny guy, Seth, 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 right? Seth yeah. Oh shit. Yeah, it's I want to watch that. It's excellent. That's you need awesome. To start I'm gonna. I'm really totally good. gonna. I gotta get Hulu. My like 57th uh, streaming platform. Yeah. Exactly. Now yeah, we've been watching The Boys platform. too, which is disgusting. Oh my gosh, Robbie funny. loves that show. That's the one. I I draw the line with that one. It's too <laughs> too much for me. I can't. Oh, you mean you mean having a close up of a of a penis and having a guy climb inside of it and then grow big yeah. and explode the guy's it's, penis is it, it's, it's crazy much they go so what? far beyond yeah no it's what literally what happened that's, that's the boys no that's literally what happened in the last fucking episode oh, he, the, one of the superheroes is like <laughs> and it's like it was i'm not shitting you it was a shot of a dick like this big with the pee hole right here and he, the guy walks right in the pee hole because he's going to give him sexual stimulation it was the it was pretty fucking disgusting. It was gross. It was a little gratuitous, man. <laughs> it was. It was a it's little too much for me. Wow. I can't. What channel yeah. is that on? So I can have it ripped out of my TV. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Prime. It's about the shitty superheroes and keeping hey, them under track. Amazon Prime is weird. It doesn't. It kind of looks kind of wholesale-y, doesn't it? I mean, even the screen when you pull up Amazon, yeah, all the other ones, it's like oh, nice and glossy, really good pictures. You can see almost full frame of everything you want to watch. And then you go to Amazon Prime and it looks, whoa, low rent. <laughs> I don't know who does their website, well, but it's you should, awful. You should write in and but, tell them that. You know, maybe they'll put some more <laughs> But you can go it. forever. They're like, there's every movie, every ever no. known to man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and no, three I, of them that you don't have to pay for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Well, well, cool. I mean, I, I think we've, we're pretty good on time here. And Dad, unless there's anything else you want to chat about you know, no, no. You, uh, is there anything Jen, that you, you want to? want to go to the keys again? Just let us know. We'll we'll head on down there. Yeah, for sure. Is, we, is there anything that you want to promote, Jen, or push, or anything like that? I or, mean, uh, you know, I just really appreciate you guys having me on here. I had a lot of fun. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, thanks for just giving me the opportunity to talk about my my stuff. That's great. Yeah, well, that's great. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like the the college you're at sounds like a really nice place. Where is it at? What town is it in? It's in Philadelphia, um, and that's where I was. So I've been with Dr. Van Boxdale like literally since I became a, a PhD student. Actually, I started out as a master's student, then transitioned to the PhD program because they were getting paid, and I was doing the exact same coursework. Um, so I was like, let me just do that. Um, and I've been with her through my postdoc, I mean, all the way up till now. Um, so I used to live in Philly and now, um, I'm here in New Jersey working remotely. Um, but, uh, Drexel is amazing. It's one of the more diverse oriented, um, graduate schools and just, uh, you know, even undergraduate school. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy there. Well, Steph and I are actually be in philadelphia in august for a ramstein concert awesome um, so we should we'll, coordinate we'll something we we're gonna stay in yeah we're gonna stay in uh i think we're gonna start and stay in manhattan and then just just commute down to see the show or something i don't know it, it's like our first kind of big getaway that we've been able to have since we've been doing the fucking psychotic uh <laughs> everyday working schedule that we've been doing lately so it'll be nice to get away but we'll we'll hit, hit you guys up when we come up oh absolutely be good to hang out. and you can meet cora it'll be fun mm-hmm. and i could show you i could so. show you around philly a little bit maybe i don't know i, I i've just, been to philly like strictly new york and yeah. it just grew on me i mean it, when you're there for like i've been there once years. 
I did a convention in Philly a couple of years back. I think like 2012 or 2013, I did a convention back then. And then um, I, I just, I literally just, I did the same thing in Chicago when I was in Philly. I just kind of walked around by myself and you didn't have to, it's not, it's crazy because Philly's big, but you can literally just walk from one side to Philly to the other. You don't have to catch a cab. You don't have to, yeah. you just walk. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is what Rocky did. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah. I it's, see it now. And then you go through lovely. all the art stuff. All the art stuff was just some of the most amazing shit I've ever seen in my life. Like, oh my gosh. The, and you just keep, yeah, you just ben keep walking down the street and going on another one and you're like, wow, what the yeah. fuck? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely, I think it's underrated and uh, I regret, mm. you know, the time I spent being anti-Philly, you know, living closer to New York. <laughs> so. Yeah. Shout out to my buddy Jose Lopez in Philadelphia. We're talking about your city out there. <laughs> like, it, just in case you listen to this someday. Who's Jose Lopez? Jose Lopez. He's a friend of ours that was in town. He was a business guy. Gotcha. Business oh, guy friend. Business, not the, one of your dad's business guy friends. Nice. nice. Yeah. Well, great. Um, well, thank you for being on again. We appreciate yeah, it. Thanks um, for having me. You know, yeah, for sure. I'm going to go ahead and push stop here, guys. You guys just hang out. <laughs>